Okay, so I'm going to kind of ease my way into this one. I don't think there's any other way to do it. And this is something, uh, again, that I want to do for a while. Finally getting around to doing it. And I've talked about this before in other podcasts, but I think this is going to be the definitive one where I kind of sketch out exactly what I mean when I talk about this, right? And I, I, I've kind of, I don't want to say it's an influence because it's too close to me. Uh, it's too close in the in the past to be an influence, right? It's too close. So I wouldn't say an influence. I'd say a guiding light. That's what I want to say. And I, you can say an influence is a guiding light, but I, I think an influence is more something that you had experienced in the deep past and that's something that has shaped you already. And for me, this book is something that I want to shape me in the coming years and just the principles behind it and everything like that. Uh, and the book I'm talking about is Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique with the G. Uh, He's a Mexican author. I think this is his, this is not a new work. This is a recently translated work uh, that's been translated from Spanish to English. And it's one of the few works of his that have been translated from Spanish to English. I think the majority of his work is still in English and Spanish only. And uh, one of the previous um, works of his that was translated was Hypothermia, which in English is a collection of short stories, but in Spanish is a novel. That's something that he said in the interview that they had with him at the uh, Con Library of Congress, where he talked for almost an hour about just the philosophy behind this book and what it took to write it and what he had to do and what 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 it was that led him to write this book in the first place, right? And for people who don't know, let, let's start from the beginning. Let's start from the very beginning, right? I first heard about this book on a podcast where they were talking to Alvaro and... Um, that podcast was the Greenlight Bookstore podcast. I think a pretty well-known podcast among people who uh, like kind of lesser-known books, I would say. Lesser-known books and uh, like to hear writers and authors talk about their process. I think they have some journalists on there too. I don't usually listen to the journalist episodes just because I'm not very interested in journalism. But pretty much every author on there, I do listen to their interview with um whoever the interviewer is, who usually it's someone related to them, someone experienced and in the field, someone who would have uh, the knowledge to ask the questions that they end up asking. So I'm sorry, I'm a little sick today, I think. Um, so excuse any sniffling that I do. So this podcast with Alvaro at, 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 the, at the bookstore, uh, I, I hadn't read the book at that point in time. I, I just listened to the podcast at first. And when I heard him talk, it, it, it immediately reminded me of Javier Bardem. That was the first thing I thought of. That might be racist. I don't know. But just his accent is so uh, Javier Bardem that I, I just imagined him in my head as a as bespectacled Javier Bardem who writes books. And if you ask – if I was gay, that would be someone that I would totally marry, right? That would be like the perfect man for me. And so I started with that conception. That was the first thing that I thought of. So take everything else I say – through that lens, uh, whether you want to or not, I guess that's a lens that you have to interpret it to. So I started hearing uh, him talk about his book through that. And the first thing or the way they introduced the book on that podcast was they said this is a book that over the course – it's a novel. It's a novel and over the entire course of the novel, it takes place during a tennis match between the Italian painter Caravaggio and the Spanish poet Francisco de Cavedo, right? Right pronunciation is obviously horrible. 
But between these two, like, uh, well-known creative figures in their own right, and they have this, uh, this one tennis match between them, and this entire book takes place over this tennis match. And when I first heard that, my mind was blown. Like, uh, finding one thing that I aspire to do as a writer, right? And it's something that a lot of writers uh, say they want to do. Um, and ultimately, I think doing end up doing to some degree is finding the depth in like the little moments, right? So at the surface level, you see this tennis match between these two relatively, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say titans at the time. They were well-known people, but they weren't like, uh, they weren't like the Kevin Hart of their day. They're not instantly uh, admired and like respected for what they're doing. They're just creative people. And there were a lot of creative people during the time because it was just after the Renaissance and there's a lot of creative minds going around. It was one of the greatest creative periods in our human history, right? So they're just walking around and just randomly they have a duel, right? And the, the circumstances that led to this duel are explained at the end of the novel, but they have this duel but the duel is a tennis match, and tennis wasn't even called tennis at the time. It was called uh, I don't I don't know if it's pronounced paya corda or pala corda. That's what it was called at the time, and the rules are so weird. And that's one of the things that uh, you you kind of like struggle to understand is the rules of the game because they're not uh, per, like they're they're explained to some degree, but they're not like completely laid out in one uh, one go or anything like that. They're just revealed as the game progresses, right? which I think is indicative of a lot of things within the novel. Like the whole history of or the historical consequence of the game is not explained to you or you don't grasp the full, I wouldn't say consequence, maybe the historical, like uh, like sim the symbolism and the, like uh, the extent to which tennis permeated or he does a good job of explaining how tennis permeated society at the time. That's one of the things that we'll talk about later, but... He, they talk about uh, this tennis match. You first think it's just a, a normal tennis match, right? At surface level, it's a tennis match between an artist and a poet. And for like a creative type like me, the tennis match between the artist and a poet would be like a dream to explore because you can be you can talk about so many things with such a metaphorical lens because it's between two artists, right? So that's just the, that's just like the frame of the novel, though. And I don't know what else do you want to talk about. I guess we'll talk about the format because that's the first thing that comes to mind. The format of the novel, there's like a bunch, so many like small, small nuggets of writing in this book. It's kind of crazy. So the each game in each set is explained. It's a three-set game, right? And whoever wins two sets wins. So each game in each each set is described as a chapter, but and and while he does describe the tennis that takes place, right? He also describes like the stadium in which they're playing, the audience members, the the people who are betting on the sidelines, the people who came with the contestants, and and like and he he explores all of their stories in different chapters as well, right? And the whole thing is completely non-linear. That's why it's so hard to talk about the book because there's no like. There's no uh, line through the whole thing, except for the line that he's creating out of nothing, seemingly. So the format he talks about in his uh, Library of Congress interview, he talks about how the format of the book was inspired by the content, right? And that's something which we don't ever see. Because he he also talked a lot about the 18, the writers, the novel writers of the 1800s, how they 
they bent their story to fit the format of the novel because the novel is so long. You have to have a story that fits that that form. If you want to tell a story that's that big, it has to have that much scope, right? So they they created these stories specifically to fill out a novel and not they didn't let the novel form lend itself to a story naturally, if you get my drift. So let me explain that one again. Let's first start with the novel. He talks about Dickens as someone uh, exemplary of who took the novel form and really uh, came into it because in, at the time they used to release one chapter per week. That was the way that novels were written in those days. And after all the chapters were released, they would compile them into one volume and then that would be the book at the end of it. So uh, he was talking about how they're rewarded for making longer books that like linger over one thing that don't flip back and forth between different things because a person who saw today's chapter but didn't see last week's chapter if they don't immediately understand what's going on then you're you're putting yourself at a disadvantage there compared to the other writers who are doing that who are making a, a followable linear narrative which you can trace from point a to point b like oliver twist starts as an orphan he's adopted and at the end he becomes whatever i don't remember the end of that book okay uh in great expectations that guy eventually becomes successful he's uh he receives a salary or whatever at the end it's a very linear like point a to point b and he's talking about how that was the case because of the way the novel was created it was created in this weekly serialized format so not only were they i would i won't, I won't say longer than necessary they're just long in general but they're also structured in a way which makes it easy to understand for anybody, right? And he's talking about how that format, that easy-to-follow linear format that generally was followed before postmodernism came into being in the 1950s or so, he's talking about how that format only is the ideal format for certain stories, right? Not all stories can be told perfectly in that way. So his story which he became, how he came about the story in the first place is he, he says he became obsessed with the painter Caravaggio, right? And he's talking about how Caravaggio was this like a virtuosic painter. He was like this prodigious, like amazing talent of a painter. At the same time, he had this like super shady uh, personal life where he used to just, he I think he was homeless at some point. He used to be a professional tennis player, which was a different thing in those days. You just... It's basically like being a pool shark now. He was a, a street urchin at some point, and he like lifted himself up by his bootstraps from the dirt to like uh, make paintings that now are in chapels of Rome, like Roman Catholic chapels. Uh, carry this dude's paintings, right? And his first, his initial name wasn't even Caravaggio. Caravaggio is the name of the village which he came from in the 1500s. He he changed his name to the village which he came from to like reflect his uh kind of minor st like standing or his minor starting place in life so he talks about how he became obsessed with this this painter right and he like at the time the stuff that he was painting was considered like uh kind of scandalous to some extent because well, that was in his later period he initially started just um uh, by painting like uh, like the usual stuff, like uh, bowls of fruit and stuff like that. Because at the time, that was kind of new because still lifes were not a thing. But he was painting a bowl of fruit. And the bowl of fruit uh, is like... it. If you if you haven't seen the Caravaggio painting Basket of Fruit, I, I do like think you should go look at it, right? It's, it's, it's insane. It looks like... It's more beautiful than a photograph, I think, anyway. Because 
the photograph is just like it's just what is there but he the way that uh, Car- um so uh, and alvaro describes how caravaggio used to set up his paintings which the scenes which he uh, depicts in his paintings were actually played out in his studio like he had the studio where there was only one point of light that entered the entire studio and it was like a point source which just fell on everybody on all the subjects which he was painting right and he would uh like for example there's um there's a few paintings he did of uh, mary magdalene well, not mary magdalene my bad um uh, the virgin mary holding the baby jesus and stuff like that and because he was or if as a cre- creative choice or because he knew these people he would get uh beggars and prostitutes from the street to play out the roles in his paintings and he would render them perfectly obviously because he's a genius painter so at the time when he made these paintings it was a huge scandal because if you see a prostitute depicted as the Virgin Mary in a painting, like you, the Roman society kind of freaked out and the popes kind of like got all up in his business about that stuff because he, he, it was a scandal that he was portraying the Virgin Mary as a prostitute, basically. So there was that stuff. And he uh, he, he had them like hold this pose in his um, in his studio for days and he would just paint and he wouldn't sleep at all. He would just stay up and paint this entire painting from start to finish and then he would go carry it on his shoes from his studio to the uh the bishop's house where he was to turn it in and he would just give it to the bishop and then get the money that he needed to live because he was living on commission like they would pay him when the work was done they would commission the work and only pay him when the work was done so if he didn't paint he couldn't eat right and i won't get into how this reflects current artistic trends or anything but hey uh the point is and he and in this Library of Congress interview, he's talking about how uh, the real art is not the painting, but the real art is the scene which he created in that room because that was what he translated onto the medium of canvas and depicted as a painting. But as a photo, it would be maybe equally beautiful or more beautiful because the the characters that they bring to the painting, the beggars and the prostitutes or whatever, the characters that they bring to the painting while he he does his best to capture their their likeness their their image in his in his work could, could does he actually like bring across the cultural cultural weight that he created by having these low class people depict depict these holy figures right that's not like a perfect explanation i'm not attempting to know his mind i'm just saying like it's interesting for me to think about this which is why i found this book so fascinating and we're just talking about the format so far, right? And we're talking about the the figure at the center of it. And there, I wouldn't even say that Caravaggio is like the only subject that is at the center of this novel because I don't think there is a center to this novel. I think the scope is too large for there to be only one center, right? So at, on one side, you have Caravaggio who's like uh, this... And he's he's primarily, I would say, the the creative focus of the novel, right? In in name, he is the focus of the novel, but he, I wouldn't say it. the majority of the novel talks about him at all. Like, it talks mostly, I wouldn't even say mostly, because there's nothing, you can't say mostly, there's no, like, generalization you can make about the subject matter of this book, because it's so, it's so eclectic, I don't even want to say eclectic, but eclectic, I think, is a good way to put it, is it's so, uh, uh 
wide-ranging in its choice of topics. Another thing, another thing that he talks about is at the center of uh, at this the reason this tennis match has other significance is because of the arrival of these two uh, Spanish men, right? The poet and this Duke of Osuna, who's also a historically significant figure, and through him, through his wife, who's the daughter of Cortez, they they link to the 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 conquest of Mexico. Right, so you have the old world, which is represented by Caravaggio, and his paintings and his like, and he is not even just the old world; he's bringing change to the old world from within, right? And then on the other hand, you have the son-in-law of Cortez. Cortez, obviously, being the conquistador that killed all those Aztec people and conquered the Mexicans, and you could say like uh, he was just a straight-up. A brute, a straight-up villain, because he killed so many people. But as you see in the book, the people that they he, um, the people, the Aztecs. After when he destroyed the Aztec kingdom, it wasn't just his army. He didn't have enough people to conquer the entirety of Latin America by himself. It was actually the smaller tribes that, like, falsely put their trust. You could say falsely, but they were freed from the yoke of the Aztecs to a, a new yoke. But hey, still freed from the yoke of the Aztecs. Uh, they, the, all the lesser tribes joining with his soldiers to conquer uh, the Aztec kingdom, right? So, on like, Alvaro on one hand is like, hey, uh, the old world, which he says is full of, let me let me quote, is full of priests that fuck boys, little boys or something, and he talks about his reason for writing the book in the first place is that. He wanted to show that even in this Roman Catholic kind of like strictness, and he's a Latin American, so I'm going to assume he's Roman Catholic as well because the majority of Latin America is. Uh, he talks about how this this like priesthood, he used to, uh, this counter-reformation era is full of all these corrupt, violent, uh, just almost you could basically describe them as evil priests that were doing all these horrible things. And at the same time, there's this guy who just is creating great art, right? And at the end of the book, he talks about uh, this this priest, Quiroga, who went to Latin America at the behest of the Spanish government. And he went there with the express intent of like recreating this utopian society, utopia, utopian society in quotes, because utopia was a book written by Thomas More. And he talks about how this, uh, this priest read this book and he implemented it. He actually implemented the things that are prescribed inside the book. And he made a, like an, a, a colony of artisans that make different things from uh, feather working to like to farming to raising sheep and things like that he makes um all these colonies that do these specific things and that's like in your head that you think of when you think of like a pastoral idealness in 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 society you think of like a bunch of artisan villages that each do their own thing and trade between each other for uh, the things that they don't have that they need. And that's what he made. He actually made that. That's like a historical fact. And he made that in Mexico. And some of those villages exist to this day. And they subsist on the the art that was introduced to them back in that day by this one priest. So he's, again, showing us, like, the, the within the corrupt... Uh, institution of the Catholic Church. There's this. There's this guy who wants to do good, and he is able to do good because of the position that's afforded him. So he's showing us the the peril of of doing that of that 
authority being invested in a few individuals and at the same time he's showing us the good that it can bring and at the same uh, just like that a few like a hundred years before that guy came cortez came by and he fucked all of latin america up but at the same time he liberated all these people from the aztecs and in the book he some there are some um, passages where he describes the aztec rituals from the perspective of a person who's not aztec but is in the aztec empire and he's saying and that person um i'm paraphrasing obviously that person says uh who who cares like at least he's not sacrificing humans and making us eat people for no particular reason. Like it's just one uh, exchanging one emperor for another, right? So he's like delving into all this historical black and whiteness that we just take for granted in in our normal history, and he's like showing us that there's so much more to that. At the same, because the the whole point of this book is the tennis match, right? And this tennis match is. They're playing with a ball, and in those days, tennis balls were made of human hair, apparently. And uh, this ball made of human hair is of special significance in this tennis match because the hair that it's made from is from Queen Anne Boleyn, Henry the Eighth, or Henry the Henry the Eighth's uh, wife, who he had executed. Um, it apparently her head was her, the hair off her head which is shaved before they use the guillotine on you, is uh, ex it was stolen and made into tennis balls, four tennis balls, which like make, he like traces um, the path that these tennis balls take from first leaving her head, which is the first chapter of the novel is actually the execution of Anne Boleyn. And we see that this tennis ball is being made. And from the point which they were created to the point at which they arrived and through their journey, through the this, um, through the ball's journey, through history to arrive at this tennis match, which is of relative insignificance compared to all the other places that it has inhabited and all the other kings and popes and priests that it's uh, passed through to get to this tennis match between Caravaggio and Quevedo, you see that he traces like the history of um, the history of Rome at the time or the history of the Italian government and the Roman Catholic Church, which is like a big figure at the center of this. And at the time, the, the Italian government didn't even have as much power as the Roman Catholic Church because the church had so much money and they had the people's ear and they had the they could just change the rules of what was legal or not because they were working with a flexible uh, set of morals because they just wanted to be done what they wanted to be done. And he, he talks about in some chapters how they changed the rules um, of the Bible to enable them to do things that they previously could not have done. So he's tracing the history of the Roman Catholic Church through the literary device of these balls made of Anne Boleyn's hair, which is romantic, which is a romantic concept in itself. But at the same time, it's like it it's used to this like such a such an like it's to describe the the corruptness, the decadence, the perverseness of the old world right at the first at the beginning of the novel and and cortez at the beginning of the novel cortez's story is only described as him just landing there or it's non-linear so they describe him dying they describe his daughter being married to the duke of osana and everything but uh as they spell out cortez's story as you see cortez's arc you see him first land at the new world and you see him 
initially just as an old world conqueror, right? At the beginning, everything just seems so um, cut and dry. You see Caravaggio, he's an artist. They don't really talk much about the artist, but as you go on in the book, they go into like what makes this artist special, why he wasn't just an artist of the... Uh, of the 1500s, like any other artist, why he was so special. And at the same time, they show you um, Francisco de Cavedo, who's Cortez's son-in-law. And Cortez, who we know is just a conqueror who fucked up all of Latin America, he's shown as being, like, not humanitarian, but he's shown as being, like, a liberator. Like, there's also this other side to him. These two sides exist simultaneously. And I think that's really the, the thesis of the book is that there's these two sides to everything. It's not just, no no one is just cut and dry evil, right? Because like, for example, there's this prostitute that's described in, um, I would say, uh, exorbitant detail, not exorbitant, but like uh, more than necessary detail. And she's the one who uh, was painted as um, Virgin Mary in Caravaggio's painting whose name I have forgotten, which is name I have forgotten, the name of the painting. But in that painting, uh, she plays Virgin Mary. So at, on one hand, she is known at the time that she was alive. She's known as a very famous prostitute in all of in all of Rome. But at the same time, uh, in in a historical context, she's the face of the Virgin Mary. So there's like two opposing sides, even to like this this minor character that's only mentioned, I think, like I think, like three times, and he talks about it in his Library of Congress interview because that's something that fascinated him so much is this like this ability for two people or one person to be like two diametrically opposing things and still be uh, like logically consistent as a person. And I think that's one of the things which this book really does well it, because of the format of it. It flips back and forth so quickly in the chapters between one point of view and another point of view. You can kind of see, uh, for example, this is an example of the Aztec uh, emperor who at the end of his kingdom, that's the way he's first shown, at the end of his kingdom, his entire kingdom is one boat in the middle of a lake which exists because Cortes allows it to exist. So that's like him at at the at the at the lowest point of his power, right? And he's shown as like a character of a pitiable character who's basically like just there to uh, make Cortez look like a bad guy. That's at the beginning, and at, at, by the end of the novel, you see like the effect that this king has had on other people, and you've seen all the senseless violence that he incited when he was king, and it's it shows like it shows that everyone there's no cut and dry, there's no moral good moral bad there's there's a, everything is a mix of everything right and like a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of homosexuality in this novel as well and i don't know how uh how uh, scandalous that would have been in the time that the novel deals with primarily but the main character at the center of the novel caravaggio is uh i think he's either bisexual or com or i think bisexual yeah so even like his sexuality is uh is a duality right he likes men he likes women both and uh this is a spoiler for the end of the book at the very end of the book the poet and the the poet and the artist basically like get into a little like rolling they're they're basically about to fuck at the end of the novel by the side of a river after they've p both pissed into the river after a night of heavy drinking um Interrupted only by Cortez's son-in-law. Otherwise, they totally would have fucked. Uh, but that's something that happens, right? Because, and by the way, uh, Cavedo is married. He's married to Cortez's 
daughter, as I've already said. So he's a married man and he's about to fuck this artist dude and who is put off only because his duke comes and like persuades him, not persuades him, like basically walks in on them, getting to it by the side of a river. So I completely lost my train of thought. Okay. So again, and, and, and that's just the beginning of it. Like we were talking about format before. I never explicitly uh, mentioned the format of the book. This book the format of the book he talks about in his interview at the Library of Congress, he talks about how the format that he wanted to use to write this book is one that like resembles a tennis game because the whole book is about a tennis game. So he's like, why shouldn't the format resemble a tennis game? Why should, be, why should it be long, drawn-out chapters that describe one event at a time? Why should it be that? So it, 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 he, he wanted the, 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 the narrative itself to be uh, like the ball bouncing back and forth on a tennis on a tennis court like when 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 you're served the ball you have to hit it back and the ball bounces back and forth and just like that this novel bounces back and forth between so many different things and we haven't even that's just the format of the book we haven't even talked about the historical context of the book like this book he he says took so long to research because he wanted he wanted to like include all these little facts and he the book is called Sudden Death, right? And Sudden Death is like the last chapter of the book, which we'll talk about later. But this, 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 this book, uh, he, he, let's okay. First, let's talk about the historical, uh, the way in which the book deals with the historical facts. So, there's a lot of historical um, information. So he starts with the Counter Reformation era. That's the era that he's dealing with. That's the era which Caravaggio was a. A, a big name in the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, during that time, all these other things were also happening in the world, right? Like uh, he he describes in, in detail from the beginning when these Anne Boleyn balls came into being, he describes the, the political events that led to her execution, like the, the follow-up which the, the Pope had to get the balls from the executioner who was the one who commissioned the balls to be made, like... It fall, it's like a historical story that's being told, but all of it ha- deals with like actual events that happened. And some of them are kind of crazy. Like if you told me that there someone made four tennis balls out of the hair of a deceased queen, it, it's something kind of like that you could only make up in a story, right? And some of the things that he deals with are not facts. They're, they're fiction that he created because they w- work better for the story. So he's like melding fact and fiction, but because the fiction is less spectacular than the actual fact is you believe the fiction as well, right? And that's for one of the reasons I don't want to be too, uh, I don't want to commit too much to any one fact because I haven't fact-checked this entire novel. And it would be it, it, it would be stupid if I just said, oh, this is a fact, when actually it's a fiction and you just believe it's a fact because the actual fiction in the book is so crazy that you think that the 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 fiction is fact. That's just kind of the thing. And that's another thing with the duality. Not everything is fact or fiction, right? Because this book is not a work of fiction. It's not a work of fact. It's a melding of both. And that's, I don't know. This book is amazing. Like, And he, he even delves into what this book is inside the book, right? Let me Let me pull that up. Okay, here we go. I found it. It's at the end of the chapter called Priests Who Are Swine. And we've talked about that before already, but... Um, he says, 
he's talking about him as the narrator who he said in his interview the narrator is not himself the author the narrator is an angry mexican person who's enraged by the injustice in the world right so this in this chapter called priests who are swine he says the following as i write i don't know what this book is about it's not exactly about a tennis match nor is it a book about the slow and mysterious integration of america into what we call the western world an outrageous misapprehension since from the american perspective europe is the east maybe it's just a book about how to write this book maybe that's what all books are about a book with a lot of back and forth like a game of tennis it isn't a book about caravaggio or cavedo though caravaggio and cavedo are in the book as are cortez and quatemoc the aztec emperor we mentioned before and Galileo and Pius IV, gigantic individuals facing off, all fucking getting drunk, gambling in the void. Novels demolish monuments because all novels, even the most chaste, are a tiny bit pornographic. Nor is it a book about the birth of tennis as a popular sport, though it definitely has its roots in extensive research that I conducted on the subject with a grant at the New York Public Library. I embarked on the research after mulling over the discovery of a fascinating bit of information. The first truly modern painter in history was also a great tennis player player and a murderer our brother nor is it a book about the counter-reformation but it takes place in a time that now goes by that name which is why it's a book that features twisted and bloodthirsty priests sex addict priests who fuck children for sport thieving priests who obscenely swilled their coffers with the tithing and alms of the poor all over the world priests who are swine vasco de quiroga was a good priest of man of the world who became a man of god when his circumstances demanded it not exactly the god in whose name everyone stole and murdered in rome spain and america but a better one who unfortunately doesn't exist either carlo borromeo annihilated by the renaissance by turning torture fuck that let me start that sentence again Carlo Borromeo annihilated the Renaissance by turning torture into the only way to practice Christianity. He was declared a saint the instant he died. Vasco de Quiroga saved a whole world single-handedly and died in 1565, and the process of his canonization has yet to begin. I don't know what this book is about. I know that as I wrote it, I was angry because the bad guys always win. Maybe all books are written simply because in every game the bad guys have the advantage, and that is too much to bear. Think about that for a second. The author of a book doesn't exactly know what the book is about. Now, that's like a recipe for spelling out why a book is just complete shit, right? But this book is coherent. It tells a, a compelling narrative, I would say. A compelling narrative of a, of a changing world of people who find themselves in a place where they don't exactly fit in, but which they think will eventually change to include them. And And this guy talks about how he wrote this book because the bad guys always have the advantage and he wanted to tell a story where the good guys always also have some say in the matter of how things turn out right and that's why he talks about this priest kuroga who basically saved a whole a whole nation of people because the guy who who who's opposing him in uh, new america was who wanted to kill everyone who was a pagan or who uh, practiced any kind of act that wasn't explicitly christian right he talks about that and I think this book is so difficult to nail down because it deals with so many things. Like, this is all just like the the meta narrative that I'm talking about, about how the, he talks, he addresses all this, like, uh, this duality in even one individual. But at the same time, it's a book about tennis, right? There's a lot of tennis in this book. The book is about a tennis match. And throughout the book, he, he, he has these, like, mini chapters, which are like a paragraph, two paragraphs of, of like, like a random historical figure 
talking about tennis. Like, remember I mentioned Thomas More, the Englishman who wrote the book Utopia, which Kuroga then implemented in New America? There's a book about him calling tennis a game of the devil or something like that. And you wouldn't think that this, like, random, like, intellectual writer would say anything about tennis because tennis... In our head, it's so insignificant, right? Tennis. But like tennis is what links all these people. Tennis is what links Caravaggio to Cavedo. It's what links uh, Cavedo to Cortez and everyone. Tennis is what brings all of it together. But tennis is not what the book is about. Think about that. Like conceptually, the book is about a tennis match. But at the same time, it's just as much not about a tennis match as it is about a tennis match. Even though the format... And the, the subject matter and everything revolve around tennis balls, a particular set of tennis balls, and all this uh, tennis paraphernalia and everything. The book is not about tennis. Like, at, at its core, it's not about tennis at all. What? Just conceptually, that, that blows the mind to think about. Because I think my cold is progressing into a full-blown flu or something. Uh this book is simultaneously about and not about tennis. So the subject matter of the book itself reflects the duality that he's talking about and everything, right? This book is called Sudden Death, but it's not about tennis, even though it is about tennis. That's genius. I don't know. This book is like a work of, it's, it's, a, it's an inspired work. And, and a lot of what he said in that Library of Congress interview, I've, I've, I'm already trying to incorporate into my own, uh, into everything that I try to do from now on. Like, fit the format to the story. Don't let the format dictate the story, right? That's point one. Point two, writing is not a, a traditionally, it's not like it's traditionally assumed to be where it's just one person's vision brought to fruition, right? And he learned this firsthand because when he had his work translated into Spanish, he's one of the few authors who I've said the translated work is every bit as original as the original. He says, this is the original. This is not a translated work because it's a collaboration. He says, um, all books are collaborations. And to think that a book is just a singular mind's idea that's brought to fruition through uh, writing is false because there's editors, there's publishers, there's people who affect the work all, all along the way. So it's a collaborative medium, any bit as much as film, any bit as much as music, which is which flies in the face of everything that we think we know about writing in the modern day, right? Even today, it, it, you think of writing as the last bastion of uh, bringing the creator's vision to the medium, like to the page in this case, which is something that w used to be harped on a lot back in the day with film, like, oh, it's the creator's vision, it's a director's movie, this is this is ultimately what he wanted to make or what she wanted to make, but at the end of the day, that's, that's just not true, like you can't make a movie by yourself, so it's false to even assume that that is the case, and he's making the same case for writing. He, like I just read out in that passage, he says a lot of this book comes from extensive research that he conducted at um, the New York Public Library and in the University of Texas in Austin, which contains that annotated copy of Thomas More's Utopia, annotated by uh, the priest Kiroga, who he talks about. Like, how is that not collaboration without the help of these other entities? He didn't make the work that he's talking about. He's talking about all this historical fact 
It's like a collaboration novel at its core, right? And it's collaborated with as well in that it was initially published in Spanish, but now it's been translated into English. And the translated version has three chapters more than the English version because when he went back to write it, he thought, it, oh, I could put this here or whatever. He had an idea to add more to the story, to flesh out the story more. Not flesh out, maybe like fully bring to fruition what he had wanted to initially and just didn't uh, think to do at the time because... Um, I forget the translator's name, but she said uh, she like her her perspective on it brought him um, the ability to go back. And when he went back, he uh, saw more there and he wrote three more chapters. So this this version is longer by three chapters. So it's it's not a translated work. It's an original in its own right. It's something that he stresses again and again in his interview with the Library of Congress. So like this book. I think it's it's one of the best books I've read in a long time, right? And uh, on Goodreads, it's sitting at three point seven, and that blows my mind. I guess a lot of people didn't. I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions on readers, but at least they took the time to read the book, right? It seems to be a well received book. I'm not going to pretend like oh, uh, this is a hipster pick. It seems to be a very well received novel, but I don't know if it if people have the same appreciation for it that I have uh, grown to appreciate this novel in in a, in a completely new light like every every part of the novel is 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 dedicated to bringing this message to people right and that's not something that we see because the novel in itself is not um a, a medium that lends itself to a dedicated storytelling effort or by dedicated i mean custom tailored how about that like tailored for one specific story the novel is not that the novel is a format which is demanding to both to read and to write and which um it demands also of the story being told a certain a certain style a certain type of story and and this story is so like i'm not going to say it like completely flies in the face of what novelists are doing because it's not like an experimental novel or anything like that it's just it's just um, so wide in its scope that it makes it, it, it inhabits the format of a novel, but at the same time, it covers a lot that I think a normal novel wouldn't be able to cover in the same length that this novel. This is not a very long book. I think it's between 200 and 300 pages. But within those pages, he covers so much because the way he looks at things is so fleeting because of how we explained before how... Uh, it's like a tennis match, so the ball doesn't stay on one side of the court for very long, right? It, it the ball is constantly moving, so this this novel is constantly moving, but it it manages to give you a clear look at something before moving on to give you a clear look at something else, and and in doing so, it constructs a very large narrative of like more than a hundred years of world history, not even just European history, because. While it does deal with the Roman Catholic Church, which is ultimately what links the New World and the Old World in this book, it looks at so much more, right? It looks at, like, art at the time. It looks like art in the future. One of the chapters in this book is an email which the author receives from his agent where she uses a saying which is associate, which is derived from a, a saying which used to be used only for tennis, but which has made its way into common parlance in Spanish. And she uses that saying with him, and he points this out, and he asks her in the email, can I include this email in the book? And she says, no, but it's in the book anyway. 
that's just one of the things where like tennis is everywhere and tennis is like i don't know if it's exactly a metaphor or or what it is but it tennis is used here as like a as like a, as like a, like a, a kind of like an, an i don't even know what to say like it it just defies description what what this book is at the same time it it has so much inside it you can, when you look at this book you can tell that there's so much there but you can't it's like trying to describe an ocean right you can describe like one part of the ocean be like hey this is uh shallow there are light waves here sometimes you can surf but like that description doesn't sum up the entirety of the ocean the ocean in itself is vast and unknowable right that's like one of the words that gets tossed around about oceans a lot this book is vast to to study this book would take ages like every part of this book has to be analyzed separately because every part is separate but at the same time it's united that's the because it's united because it's in one book right if you could take any of the stories out of this book and make it its own story that's like one of the things that they tell you when you're in writing class as a in the creative arts department one of the clichés that they gets thrown around is make each character the 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 center of their own novel right write each character with enough depth that if you if you wanted to you could pull them out and make them um the star of their own book and that is like doubly true here but like that's even true of like the minor characters that's true of like the little historical tangents he goes on could have this is like the like it's like finding a, a like a, a room full of separate threads and like grabbing them at the base and pulling them all together but in like a natural way so that instead of uh like a, a hand grasping a bunch of thread all the like thread uh intertwines to become like a spider web because it feels very different and very connected at the same time which is insane and again goes back to what we talked about earlier but like Every chapter is separate. Cortez never met Caravaggio, but somehow you feel that their stories are connected because it's telling this grander narrative that's brought about only because his storytelling style is so good that he's able to bring together these separate stories into one. And that one is this book, Sudden Death. I think if you're looking for an interesting read, if you're looking for something to like get you thinking... And keep your mind open, by the way. You may, you may not immediately click. It, it took me like 25% into the book to like realize what was happening. It's still gripping. It's not boring or anything. It's definitely an interesting book right off the bat. But when you when you like realize the 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 scope, the vastness of what he's trying to do here, that's when you like gain real appreciation for what's being said to you. Because you take it into a new context. Like the, the 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 narrator's life is behind the curtains. You you kind of read into that a little bit because he talks in the first person somewhat, and the whole book is like it's being narrated. And I'm not even going into like the specifics of like the dialogue, dialogue. What am I, New Jersey? No, uh, the the specifics of the formatting of the dialogue, which I find very interesting, and everything. I'm not even going into that because I, I think I've already said a lot about this. I might have already spoiled it for you. I, I hope I haven't because reading this book for the first time was something novel and like really amazing for me. This is kind of an insane experience. I won't lie. And it's crazy how this works, but it somehow managed to work. Like everything in this book should not work the way it does, but it does somehow. So with that, I'm going to conclude it. I'm not going to take, I've already gone maybe 15 minutes longer than what this was supposed to be, but hey, that's 
kind of the nature of this format. So contradicting myself in the last sentence with what I said in the first sentence. Beautiful. Anyway, thank you for listening. My throat is hoarse as fuck. And uh, I'll see you in the next episode of this, whenever that is.